So today's lecture is really the big thing I want you to pick up is a different concept of sin. Um, and I think you've just come out of modern philosophy, yes? Yeah? So you've been doing crazy stuff there. Um, and mind paradigm shifting going on there. I want you, I'm hoping today, to change the way you think about sin. And maybe you're all perfectly formed in the uh, philosophical tradition already, so that what I'm going to say just was, you're going to say, oh, that's what I already thought. Um, but possibly not. Certainly when I first was presented with this vision of sin, and I was already a priest at this stage, um, doing licentiate studies, it utterly changed how I thought about sin. And the thing that was important to me was I saw the description, I thought, that is what I do, and that is why I do it. And with that, a better awareness of how I can cause myself not to do it. Uh, so understanding sin is a big thing, a useful thing. Um, okay, so, mind map to start. <laughs> I'd have been very popular, wouldn't I? <laughs> You'd have seen that word up there for the rest. <laughs> okay, right. Sin. So the question is, what is sin? Um, I'm going to give you a little quotation. It's choosing good evilly, which sounds like weird grammar, um, but choosing good but in an evil manner. So the, the point is that in the same way there's this drive for happiness in you, this drive for the good, even when you sin, there's strong, something within you about this seeking the good but it, then you pervert it in sin. Now, there are two ways we do that. One is we choose a thing called an apparent good. Not a real good. And the other is we choose a real good, but it's out of measure. or technically inordinate. So, having one beer is a good, is a real good. Having ten beers, it's a real good out of measure. Having one beer just before mass is a real good, but out of measure in terms of its context and timing. So sometimes we choose things that are really good, but not in the right context, time, measure, and that actually means it's choosing good evilly. Whereas then there are other things that actually we reach for because they kind of appear desirable, even though they aren't really good. 
So St. Thomas uses a phrase that sounds rather obscure. He says, absence of consideration. That basically, you haven't thought properly about what you're doing. The more properly you focus on what you're doing, the more obvious it is to you what is truly desirable. So that when we sin, and sometimes we can even consciously see ourselves doing it, we just choose not to think about it. I'm just going to have the third beer and I'm not going to think about whether I should. And you will, as a priest, find people that will actually say to you, one of my favourite lines I will often hear from a parishioner is, it's best not to think too much about these things, Father. Um, implying that thinking too much is just scrupulous, whereas actually, frequently, it's that thinking that makes us realise what we're doing and stop what we're doing. And often what we do when we do that little bit of extra thinking is we see what's really good, not just what appears good. Okay, so taking a step back philosophically, kind of recapping a couple things from last lecture. We talked about how every nature aims to its end how man seeks happiness, how the desire within us, that is kind of this general quest becoming more focused. So desire seeks the good, seeks in concrete cases sorry, seeks goods as individual things, that desire seeks things that are attractive. If it wasn't attractive, you wouldn't be moving towards it. So one of the ways I can stop myself from sinning is just looking at a thing and thinking what is undesirable about it. So this quest for happiness, we looked at last time, is a quest for God. More precisely, happiness, we said, is in the Latin is beatitude. Okay, that's all I'm going to say on that bit. I'm going to come back to the mind map later when I throw in another thing about what we mean when we talk about freedom. So the reading material you had from the catechism, it talked about the definition of sin, but it also talked about freedom. Um, and just to remember the context and the catechism structure, you only are looking at freedom after the catechism has talked about this inbuilt quest for the beatitude for God. So that freedom is a consequence of this drive within Okay, so that's a thumbnail sketch to start. So, if you look to the lecture notes I've given you, we start on page one. So, I refer to 
I say the mystery of iniquity. Um, so, it, you know, this is a, a phrase from St. Paul's letter. Um, why do we sin? It's a weird thing. You know, even sometimes when we kind of know we shouldn't, we do it anyway. Um, the mystery of sin. But mystery, I'm sure you've done this already in your scripture, because in the Greek, mystery doesn't just mean something we don't know. It means a secret that has been revealed. Not just the secret, a secret that has been revealed. And the mystery of sin has been made manifest to us. So why do we sin? I've put three answers to that question on that front page that are all true in different ways. So the first answer I've put there is concupiscence. Now literally concupiscence means with desire. Um, technically though, in the Catholic tradition we've taken this word and it's what we use to describe the disorder that is present in our desires. So this was present in the Jewish oral tradition. Um, it's not written down explicitly in the Old Testament, but it was something we have from our legacy from them. But it has a precise word, this word concupiscence, a disorder in my desires. Joshua, do you mind reading that quotation from Romans? So this is what St. Paul says. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer that I do, and so that it is no longer <coughs> I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is, now, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Now we could probably spend half an hour pulling apart the grammar of what he's saying there. It's fairly complicated. But the point is he's referring to this conflict within himself. This fact that he knows the right thing and somehow he does the wrong thing anyway. Um, why? Well, one of the answers is concupiscence. Um, so, Max, can you read the definition of concupiscence that I've taken from the catechism there? Uh, concupiscence is a term used to describe the disorder within our passions. It means the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. As I summarize, concupiscence means that every human has an inherent inclination to sin. So I have even more basic within me an inclination to God. This is in my nature. I am made to seek my end. I am made for God. But there is also this inclination, because of original sin, because of the fall, to sin. It's not automatic, but it's an inclination. So, I mean, you may have done this in, well, you have done this in school, catechesis and whatever, but one analogy is of a, a man with one leg, that he's hopping along, he's not, sorry, I didn't. <laughs> he's not automatically going to fall over, but he's likely, he has an inclination. 
And that's what concupiscence is like within us. It's not automatic, we're not a prisoner of it, but it is an inclination. Okay, so that's one of the reasons. Yeah, yeah so I, I don't know if this question, maybe like not for this class, but we're out of class here. Um, we say we inherit this inclination of sin, and we have to have the fall. Like, we're just, we just inherit it from Adam and Eve. Is that what we're teaching? Is there, is there, can we elaborate more on that? Because, uh, like, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I could argue more to the fact that why we inherit what goes on. That's a great question, um, and I'm trying to blame somebody else and say it's their cause. Um, <laughs> but um, okay, so to answer the question, because it, it isn't really my subject, but um, so catechism will use phrases like inherit original sin. So this implies it's something that's passed on. Um, so that it's not, we use the phrase original sin. Catechism says it's sin as an analogy. So generally speaking, a sin is something you do yourself. Well, original sin, the baby hasn't done it himself. But in the same way, I am an American citizen because I was born of an American. I inherited that. Um, I also didn't, I was born of a human being. And that human being had flesh that had a wound within it, the wound of original sin. And that wounded state is what was passed on to me. So it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. But the state of human nature that was handed on to me has this wound in it. And that's how I've received it. Um, so what else would I add to that um, the wound isn't in the soul the soul of you remember your catechism is created directly by God when a human is conceived so if the soul is created directly by God then it's not from the soul that original sin is passed on it's passed on in the flesh but then once the soul is united to this wounded flesh, the whole has this problem, this inclination within it. So that's describing the doctrine a bit more. I think your question really was how would, that, how would you make that convincing to somebody else? Right. And I think is either Newman or Chesterton um, said that original sin was the most self-evident of all the doctrines of the church. Um, so that this fact that human beings have this inclination to sin is, is just evident in human history. So the Marxist will explain it with a um, structural analysis, but the Marxist structural analysis is pointing out the fact, or, or trying to explain the fact, that we just see in all human societies this tendency for things to go wrong, this tendency to evil. That's how I would start my explanation. So yes, we believe it because it's in scripture, but actually I think we see it all around us. And I'd repeat the thing about it being this word original sin as an analogy. Um, 
is a state of original sin, not an actual sin that the baby commits. Yeah. Is original sin connected to concupiscence? Yes. So concupiscence is a result of original sin. Um, and in terms of what's passed on, that's in a sense the key thing that's passed on. So the, the separation from God, which the book of Genesis describes as being cast out of Eden, that's passed on. You're born no longer a citizen of Eden. We're, you know, just I was born not in America, but of America. Um, but at a practical level, concupiscence is in us because of original sin, a consequence of original sin. More than that's going to divert us away from my course. But those are big questions. I think that would have to be one of your dogma courses. Might be worth asking which course that's supposed to come into. But I would have thought your profession of faith course should have done that. Did it? No. Okay, why do we sin? That's the first answer, concupiscence. There's this disorder within me. So even though most fundamentally I'm made for good, made for God, there is also within me this disorder so that my seeking after the good has this crazy disorder within me that makes me prone to fall and sin. Now secondly, and this is the more specific thing that I'm going to spend more time this morning elaborating, is that sinful action is attractive. Now, why is sin attractive? I say here, because all sinful action masquerades as a good. I want you to hold on to that word, masquerade. Yeah, it's like wearing a mask, dressing up as something. But because it masquerades as a good, you can relate to it as if it was good. Because it masquerades as a good, it's attractive to you. I say, but it's an apparent good, not a real good. I give an example there. I say, the man who steals, what's he thinking as he's stealing? He's thinking, this is going to be good. This is going to give me what I need. This is going to make me happy. I want this good thing. This is good for me. So his motive in stealing isn't possessing this will be bad for me, even though he might know it, even though he might know this is going to send me to prison or he might know this offends against Almighty God and I'll be cast into hell. He might know all those things. But there's the thing he's thinking while he's doing it is all the positive, attractive things about it. That's what's pulling him towards it. And I said, that pattern holds for all sin. And note in bold that thinking, stealing that thing will be good for me, does not imply thinking stealing is morally good. So I'm aware there's, we're using the word good in different ways here. So when we're saying it's a good that I'm attracted to, that's not the same thing as saying it is morally good when I say it's the right thing to do. Do you want me to elaborate on that difference? Good as a moral evaluation, being different from good as in attractive. 
And then the third and last reason on that page, and we won't go through this today, but if you want to follow it up, there's a substantial appendix I've put on the notes here on it, but the devil tempts us. So that is the, the third element in the mix there, why we sin. And the reason I've got that appendix is to point out the limits of the devil's power. Um, we can't blame the devil for everything. He is real. He does have real effects on us but his power is limited. And because, in a sense, he did such an effective job in the original sin, he doesn't need to do much directly because there is this inclination in us to mess things up ourselves. Okay, page two of the notes. Does that page look familiar? Did we do go through that in slow motion last week? Yes. So I'm not going to go through that again, but basically there is an analysis there of how humans have within the structure of our being this orientation to happiness. And that orientation to happiness means we look after, look for individual goods to give us happiness. I want the car, I want the big bank account, I want the fancy job. Those goods, I think I get them and that will make me happy. But actually the only thing that gives me real happiness, lasting happiness, full happiness, has to be a good that has all those individual goods together, the comprehensive good that is God. And so this desire within me is really a built-in desire for God calling me back to himself. But that can go wrong in sin. And that's today's lecture. But it's still the same structure of desire, looking for things that are desirable. That happens when I pursue a good life, but it also happens when I pursue sin, a perversion of that same process. Okay, so page three of the notes. Sin and the good. And here basically I'm saying a bit more slowly what I've said here and read on the board. Sin and the good. Sin occurs when we choose good evilly. Or maybe a little less clumsy. We choose good in an evil manner. Uh, and the footnote I'm quoting there is Walter Farrell's companion to the, to the summer. Um, so that came out in the 40s. Uh, still today, it's one of the classic commentaries on the Summa in terms of explaining what St. Thomas is talking about. Um, if you ever find an old second-hand copy, uh, very worth keeping for your shelves. So how do you choose good in an evil manner? Well, two different ways. One, we choose an apparent good instead of a real good. Uh, and here I'm using the example that St. Thomas Aquinas himself uses. For example, an apparent good. We view adultery as something desirable, something good. How? He says, we choose this delight of an inordinate act as something good to be performed now, rather than as something to be performed at another time by another person. 
And why do we do that? Well, because evil passions and evil habits cloud our intellect, leading to erroneous or ignorant or willfully erroneous judgments. And we're frequently blameworthy for such judgments to the extent of it being mortal sin. And there's in reverse, but good passions and good habits clarify our intellect. So you'll sometimes have parishioners say to you, as they, they, you know, you'll get various moments where parishioners will be in a kind of crisis about something and they'll come to you with an ethical dilemma. Um, and time and again, they'll use a phrase like, well, it's all very complicated, isn't it? And for someone who's never thought about a moral analysis, to begin thinking is very complicated. So St. Thomas makes this point. Um, that is, this movement to judge accurately is particularly difficult for someone who's new to thinking it through. Whereas to know the difference between stealing and not stealing, because I've had that as a habitual way of thinking for many, many years, I don't need to make a huge analysis of um, legal ownership rights of the property and the building and the whatever, um, I just very rapidly am able to make that assessment. Is this theft or isn't it? Whereas people that have been in a habit of stealing all their life, then in any particular situation, they're likely to just have a very confused sense of private property, non-private property, my property, your property. So to make a proper analysis of what is a real good, not an apparent good, part of what helps that is having already a good habit of thinking. The first time you think it through, it's long, it's hard, it seems complicated. The second time you come to the more or less the same situation, it's much easier. And then habits of good thinking it's it's easy so for a, a priest or a seminarian in terms of chastity what is a um, occasion of sin what's a situation that even going into it is likely to lead me astray that my eyes are likely to be moving to the wrong thing that my heart is likely to be thinking the wrong things. Well, sometimes early on in our progress in virtue, we can lie to ourselves a lot about those questions. And we can tell ourselves, well, it's okay, I'm only looking, or it's okay, I'm only thinking. Um, and we don't realize how we are affecting ourselves. But the more you grow in virtue in terms of thinking it through, you learn habits of good thinking. So you come to a fresh scenario, and those habits of good thinking you're just ready to apply, to know, okay, that is a beautiful woman over there, and I just know I shouldn't be looking at certain things. Without having to look at every detail to figure out what I shouldn't be looking at. Yeah. Um,
Back to St. Thomas's adultery example. So, adultery. So having sex with that married woman, now, for somebody else, namely her husband, that would be a good thing, a proper thing, utterly appropriate. Um, so it, but it isn't for me. But if I don't think about the big picture, and I just narrow my focus until it's not really seeing the whole truth at all, the bit I'm seeing, this delight of the inordinate act, that bit I'm seeing looks very desirable, looks attractive, has the masquerading of good. And so I move towards it. Whereas the more in my thinking I see the delight that this is somebody else's wife, this is going to cause damage to her, to him, um, this is going to damage my emotional... The more I fully see the picture, it doesn't look desirable anymore. And this is where in ourselves, in the temptation to sin, very frequently it's a matter of pausing in what we're doing and seeing the broader picture so that we see it fully, not just see a sliver of it that makes it look desirable. So, an apparent good. It's not really good, but it can appear good if I don't look at it properly. And because God has made you a rational being, it is your job to think about what you're doing. It's your job to think about what you're doing to the extent that it is a serious sin not to think about what you're doing. To grub around like an animal after whatever pleasure is available, that's not what you're made to do. So, to not think properly, to not see that this is an apparent good, not a real good, this is a serious thing. To the extent of mortal sin. I should be seeing this is somebody else's wife. I shouldn't be going into that. Okay, secondly then, the different pattern when we sin. St. Thomas, and again, I'm, I'm directly quoting St. Thomas here. He says, we choose something good in itself, but not according to proper measure or proper rule. He says, this is due to the choice which is not properly regulated. And I give a few examples here, or two. Say, we pray when we should be studying. Now, how many seminarians have been sat in their desk in their room about to start an assignment and suddenly feel a movement to go pray in the chapel. Yeah? Um, you have a duty to study. That's why you're here. Yes, you're supposed to pray, but we can make something that's good, but at the wrong time, distract us from what we should be doing, and it's sinful. We play games when we should be working. Well, playing games, rest, relaxation, going to the bar, um, these are good things. But if you should be working at the time, 
then it's not good. It's out of measure. So a real good, but out of measure. And this, even more obviously than adultery, we can see how we do all the time. So when I find myself doing something, um, to ask myself, is this in good measure? Is this the time? Is this the place? So I'm leaving the dining room and walking towards the pub without really thinking because I just know what's there. Um, do I think, is this the time to be going there or should I be studying? Um, absence of consideration. You are a rational being. You are supposed to think about what you're doing. And if we don't think about what we're doing, if, you know, it is a pattern of how we behave that we think, well, I just won't think about it. Max. How do you propose to somebody, let's say, that, like, you know, doesn't, it's just not a key to thinking as much as, you know, the next person? Because there are people like that, you know? Right. That are less thoughtful about what they're doing or who they're with and things like this. How do you get someone, how do you explain, you know, this kind of to them? In the sense that they know, you know, they can they have a human being, but those that don't just think about it. Well, one thing is what I've already said, that the first time you think any of these things through, it seems like hard work. But to make the point, it doesn't always stay that way. Um, so habits are good thinking, and it becomes easier to think about it. And I think to make the point, you're not an animal. You are supposed to think. Uh, and that it, a lot of these things aren't really that common. We can make them complicated when we're trying to avoid something. Um, but, I mean, in the examples we've looked at, it actually isn't that complicated, even though these are things we can see ourselves doing. At a base level, um, rules, laws, commandments, these are given to us to make some things clear. So that for the person who isn't familiar with thinking, the laying out of the commandments serves a, a minimal function. It guides us away from the wrong thing, even if it doesn't help see the beauty of the good. That's part of an answer. Right. Okay, so sin and the good. We're Moving to the good, but in a wrong manner. The next little section here, evil. Now, I just want to point out to you what in our Christian, Orthodox Christian understanding is our concept of evil here. Uh, and here I am quoting from St. Augustine. Evil is a mere privation of good. Privation meaning a lack of something. So you know there was the ancient heresy, uh, the Manichees, among others, that there were two rival sources of being, a good God and an evil God. Um, 
and the evil is kind of a real existing thing. Well, that isn't the Christian understanding. So the Christian understanding is that evil is only ever a lack of something. So the devil is a fallen angel. That he isn't a thing created in its own right. He's an angel that is lacking what an angel should have. And when I sin, my action is lacking that fullness that it should have. Reading literally what I've said here, evil is not a thing existing in itself. Evil is the corruption of a good. When we sin, we choose an evil not as evil, but in as much as it is good. I.e. the good in it is what is desirable, what attracts us. St. Augustine gives this example. He says, a man might murder another because he loves his wife. His wife is the good he pursues. But would anyone murder a man without any other occasion than only for the delight he takes in murdering? It's not credible, says St. Augustine. There's always some motive, some appearance of good, some actual partial good that's still there that is what motivates you to do the evil thing. And what we mean by evil, therefore, is not a rival to God, but just a thing that is diminished, privated, less than it should be. And part of having our understanding of that shows us, therefore, automatically why evil isn't desirable, why we should want the fullness of of the blessed life, the virtuous life, the good life. Okay. Um, Who's got good eyesight? Can someone read footnote 15? Satan fell by an absence of consideration, and that his sin consisted in choosing to contemplate only his own wondrous being, refusing to gaze upon the infinite splendor of the vision of God. The sin of pride, refusing to be subject to a superior where subjection is due, seeking to be like God and being subject to no one. Like anyone else, if Satan had ever once beheld the beatific vision of God, he would have been so completely satisfied that he would have been confirmed in good, and sin would no longer have been an option. No one would turn from the infinite good to some finite good. True beatitudes include stability and beatitude, or else it would be neither everlasting life nor true beatitude. Such a statement is not a restriction on freedom, but an indication of what true freedom is seeking so to unpack that a bit more slowly, just to make the point that this analysis, according to the Thomistic perspective, even holds for the devil rebelling against God. That if the devil had even once beheld God in his perfection, in his beauty, in his wonder, he would have been instantly satisfied. And he would have been so completely satisfied that it would have been impossible to turn away. So St. Thomas talks about being confirmed in the good. And that will be the state of the blessed in heaven. It will then be impossible to sin, because once you have fully beheld God, nothing else would be adequate as a comparison. 
So you can only reject God by not fully beholding him. Now, while we live in this world, we don't directly behold him. So, therefore, we're continually able to choose a finite possession of the infinite versus a finite good. But I'm choosing between different things that are good. So the devil, the good he pursued in refusing to look at God was to gaze upon his own wonder. And he, Lucifer, the angel of light, he was wondrous. And he chose to just behold his own splendor, which was to behold a good, rather than behold the infinite splendor of God. So he chose a good, but not the infinite good. And that's what we do whenever we sin. Yeah? Um, yeah, last class we touched on this just a tad about how free will works with angels. Um, so Satan, what we're arguing, I guess, that Satan did not see God for who he truly was. He, he decided that I didn't want to do that, and he looked at himself. Right. Okay, and angels have the capability to do that as far as how the church would answer Okay, strictly speaking, here we're following St. Thomas. We're not following the Catechism. Okay. So the, there's a whole bunch of um, theological analysis that the Catechism doesn't commit us to because there are different theories of angelic right. existence. Um, but pretty much what Thomas explains is the only coherent explanation of what the Catechism does teach about angels being real beings, being spiritual beings, being free beings. Um, but their freedom is according to the type of thing that they are. Which actually brings me on to the next thing about what freedom is. I don't want to ruin the transition. But that's okay. well, it's, it's, it's to what he's saying, but like, doesn't Aquinas also say though that like, the action of the angel because he has superior knowledge whatever he decides his will locks onto his decision, right? Yeah. So we think in stages sequentially. Uh, an angel doesn't. An angel grasps, and that is his knowledge. But that means the angel can't then turn away from it. That would be St. Thomas's analysis. So the, the catechism would teach us that angels can't change, but the philosophical analysis of that is what I just described from St. Thomas. Catechism gives us doctrine. It doesn't give us philosophy. Philosophy, there are sometimes a number of different competing explanations of the same doctrinal truth. Okay, so I'm going to give you now... Did I mention nominalism last week? I've mentioned a couple times... In Yes, yes, we did, didn't we? The second session. Um, so, um, before we look at nominalism, I want to... Let's get a different colour here. So, according to St. Thomas... Freedom flows out of your nature. Um, as you move to action. 
So freedom is an aspect of what you are, and you are free according to the type of thing that you are. So am I free to jump over the gym? It's a silly question, yeah? Um, that my nature is just not in my nature. My action follows being. I am not capable, it's not in a human's nature to be able to jump over the gym. Um, if I say um, this is frustrating, this is a, a restriction of my freedoms, the fact I'm not able to, to jump over the gym, that's just being, being as sensible as Descartes, yeah? You, you, you're getting into a weird mind game if you start asking questions and framing freedom in that discussion. But the nominalist and the modern mindset does frame things that way, because for the modern mindset and the nominalist, everything starts with freedom. And anything I might even think of doing that I'm not able to is an obstacle to freedom. So that for the nominalist, Freedom is where you start, and if nature is there, and you're wanting some action, well, you will try and bypass nature rather than work to its fulfillment. And that's a different vision of freedom. Rather than freedom as an aspect of what you are, for the nominalist, freedom is the starting thing and everything is evaluated in terms of freedom. Because for the nominalist, there's no such thing as nature. There's just random constraints. So I've got about half an hour left. 